Welcome back to the Neuroscience Meets SEL podcast, episode 22. This is Andrea Samadhi. Today I have a guest who does not need an introduction if you're in the field of education. I have Mark Brackett. He's the founder and director of the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence and a professor in the Child Study Center of Yale University. He's the lead developer of the RULER approach, the five skills of emotional intelligence. RULER is an evidence-based approach to social and emotional learning that's been adopted by nearly 2,000 pre-K through high schools across the U.S. and in other countries, and the approach is seeing huge success. He also serves on the board of directors for COSL. Mark's new book, Permission to Feel, inspires a new mindset around the power of emotions to transform our lives. Using science, passion, and lively storytelling, this book serves as a guide for understanding our own and others' emotions, as well as provides innovative strategies for developing emotional intelligence in adults and children so that emotions help rather than hinder our success and well-being. I haven't been able to put his book down because it's captivated me. Welcome, Mark. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you. Well, Mark, I'm thrilled, excited, motivated, and inspired to be speaking with you today. All those yellow, high energy, and pleasant <laughs> feelings in the mood meter chart. Uh huh. Great. That you developed. I actually watched your talk at Google first before I read Permission to Feel. And I thought, I'm going to start to try to implement these strategies in my own household with my girls. I have a 10-year-old and an 8-year-old. And I thought it would be simple, just like when we added growth mindset into our homework slot. I thought, you know, this is going to be easy and I'll have all these stories to tell Mark when I talk to him. And I had an eye-opening situation that showed me we're not as emotionally literate in our household as I thought. Can I share with you this Yeah, scenario? please. Okay, so a couple of weekends ago, we went to see the movie Lion King. And my two girls were the only kids in the theater that were bawling their eyes out when Musafa, the dad, dies. And I thought, so let's see if I can give my kids permission to feel and implement Mark's book. And so I said, why are you crying? And the oldest just pushed me away and grunted. And the youngest couldn't say anything at all. She was bawling her eyes out. And so I realized that we could be doing a better job in, in our home. And I'm surrounded by social emotional learning. I thought we were doing great. But... Clearly, we aren't. So, Mark, mm -hmm. what happens when we deny the permission to feel? And where would you suggest anyone begin when implementing your ruler approach, whether you're a parent, teacher, or an employee in the workplace? Well, that's that's a big question. Um, you know, I think maybe I should give you a little bit of history about why I even called the book "Permission to Feel" to to give context to this. And um, so as a kid, I did not really feel I had the permission to have feelings. Um, and in my book, I share kind of intimate details about my childhood, which was in many ways traumatic. Um, and I had two great parents, but they didn't really know much about emotional intelligence. And they didn't really ask me how I was feeling, uh, but nor did they um, appear to be open to hear what I had to say about my feelings. So my mom had a lot of anxiety issues and um, she made it clear, like if I tell her bad things are happening, she'll have a nervous breakdown. And my dad really was a tough guy who just wanted me to toughen up. So the challenge was that you learn, don't tell mommy how you're feeling, don't tell daddy how you're feeling, then you eat your feelings and suppress your feelings and 
act out your feelings and you know the list of unhelpful ways that we tend to use our emotions um you know can i mean i can go on and on about that um and i was fortunate that i had this uncle who uh, was my mom's brother and he was a listener he just had that facial expression that just said i'm open and and you know invited me in to have the conversation and um so I say, you know, he gave me the permission to feel because he was the person who asked the questions. He was the person who knew how to listen. And he also didn't say, you know, what are you going to do about it? He said, all right, let's, let's think through this together. So if, if you think about how I was interacting with my kids, did I kind of put them on the spot trying to get? I think, you know, you have to know you like you have to know your audience. Right. You know, so when I'm doing a talk for in the corporate world, you know, I don't ask everybody to hold their hands and <laughs> right. look, look at each other's facial expressions, you know, right. I'd probably be thrown out, you know, at that point. Um, and with your own kids, you might have been stating the obvious, you know, I'm thinking that in a movie where it's, you know, there's a Lion King, you know, it's an emotional scene, you know, they might have been like, oh, come on, mom, like, really? Um, I think so that might have been, what's that, you think so? That, that is what happened, I think. Yeah. We talked about it a couple of days later. I said, why wouldn't you tell me? And my oldest said, because you said it, that, you know, we're sad. We don't want to talk about it. Right. So, you know, maybe they felt like you were patronizing them a little bit. I don't know. I'm just making this up right now. Right. But um, I think maybe the approach could be for you to just share how you felt and then have a conversation around what, you know, what the causes were as opposed to asking them what the causes were. Right. Okay. So just to, you know, like, wow, that was so moving. And I, I'm so distraught over, you know, what had happened. And what are you thinking about this? You know, and then all of a sudden it becomes open as opposed to, you know, um, I think you have to be careful. And I'm not saying that you do this often, but I'm just putting it out there um, of making it feel very script like. Yeah. That, yeah um, and I think I in, in schools we see that, too. It's like right. it's like like, OK. Everyone plots themselves. Next, why are you feeling that way? Next, like, you know, and right. it has to be more organic. Okay, got it. And that kind of brings <laughs> me into to my next question. What are things that we should avoid when we're trying to implement this? So avoid being too scripted. What, what are some other things? Because I definitely have not had any training whatsoever in how to talk about this with my kids. <laughs> it's very funny you say that because um, I'll just share an anecdote that's related. Someone, a colleague of mine who has two boys um, was reading my book and she said, you know, we really, we're not a feeling family. It's just like they didn't you know, talk about feelings very much. And after reading a couple chapters, she said her son unsolicitedly called her and said, you know, mommy, I'm feeling kind of anxious today. And she was taken aback, you know, like, gosh, my son has never called me to tell me how he felt. And then she said she was so taken aback, she didn't know what to say. And then she looked at me, she's like, I didn't get to the chapter yet about how to respond. <laughs> and I was like, you're just his mom, you know, <laughs> you know, but yet, you know, we are, we have phobias around feelings, you know, and we're not sure how to respond, male children, female children, um, et cetera. So I think the first, you know, is you have to be the role model. Right. You've got to be a parent who talks about all feelings. And I think what happens oftentimes is that many parents really only want to talk to their kids about the positive things. 
yeah. because they don't want their kids to see them as weak or as not being able to protect them. When the truth is, um, it, it is just the opposite. The best example I have is, um, if you've heard me speak, I am quite vulnerable in my presentations and open about my own experiences in life. Um, and I've had parents, male parents, especially fathers, come up to me and say something like, you know, huh, I don't know how you do that. You know, like you're so vulnerable and, you know, you shared you know, too much. And I could never do that with my son because my son, you know, I can't imagine my son knowing that I was bullied as a kid. And, um, and then I say to these parents, I say, well, what if your son is being bullied? Right. And the implicit message that you're sending is, you know, you don't talk about these things. Right. What's the suffering that your, your son is going to go through when maybe your son sees you as a great father. And then you could say, listen, hon, honey, you know, daddy had these terrible experiences too, but look at me today. I'm your dad, you know, and, but yet there's this like weirdness uncomfortableness around, you know, being vulnerable, sharing negative emotions like shame or fear or anxiety. Yeah, it's true. When I'm working in the classroom with students, they always want to know when did things fail? They don't care about when everything went right. They're like, when exactly. did things go wrong? And were you upset? Did you cry? They want to know everything because they want to know how they can feel, uh, handle it. 100%. You know, so um, that's, it's part of this is making sure that we give permission to feel all emotions, right. not just the ones that we, you know, that make us feel positive because life is replete with negative and positive emotions. And if our goal is to just try to always talk about happiness, right? We're certainly not doing good things for the kids who are not feeling that way each day. Exactly. Exactly. And when I, I was looking and surveying all the students that I'm working with usually in the classroom, high school students, they're like your survey, you said that you did with Lady Gaga, they're, they're stressed, anxious, so they don't want to hear me coming in talking about how great things are. Um, they want to hear about the challenges that I might be having so that they say, oh, she's had challenges too, but she can get through them and so can we. So exactly. That brings us all closer together. But so when I first opened Permission to Feel and I saw the, the mood chart, I just went to where I live in the chart and I was like, oh, this is great. And thinking about the strategies that I use to get to upbeat, you know, meditation and exercise. And then I was thinking about other people in my world who live in anxious and stressed because of their work responsibilities. And then I thought, what are some strategies that you might have for people that are pressed for time that don't have the time for meditation exercise to create that work-life balance? Yeah, I think, you know, the meditation strategies are excellent. And, you, you know, people think you have to be sitting on a cushion. You can do this while driving. Maybe not go too deep into it, though. <laughs> right. um, you can do it while taking a walk. Um, and certainly exercise, like you just have to do it. You got to move. Mm -hmm. But I think what we fail to teach are the cognitive strategies. And because they're really hard. And, you know, one thing I, I say often is that sadly for many children and adults, our self views are defined by other people. So 
if you're too short or you're too tall or you're too fat or you're too skinny or you're too dark or too light or too feminine or too masculine, right? The list goes on for what people can say to make you feel bad about yourself. Mm-hmm. It starts really early. Yep. And young children are highly impressionable and uh, vulnerable. And I've seen this happen over and over again where people negative talk just becomes rampant. And I always challenge parents and teachers and say, how much time do you spend having students evaluate their negative self-talk and try to shift it to a more positive self-talk or a reappraisal strategy? Mm-hmm. And I think importantly, like that is what we have to do. And there are techniques around this, right? One is to, you know, for me, best example is I am prone to be more on the anxiety scale. Um, I worry about everything and I worry about why I worry. And I, I had did something wrong the other day. I, I was proud of myself. I was like, wow, you really have a, a good conscience because I felt so guilty. <laughs> and I was like, I couldn't let it go. It was like, until I spoke to the person. And I actually, at the end, I was like, wow, like you have, you're, you're, you have good moral development, Mark. I didn't know that you were so moral. Um, but my point really is that uh, during that process where I was like beating myself up for what I had said, like I really was driving myself crazy and you know ruminating and and then i would say all right mark take a deep breath okay how could you look at this from a different perspective right it was one phrase that you said to somebody that kind of was unintentional like is it really that bad mm-hmm. you know and then i felt better for a little while and of course i went back to my rumination but my point is is that like that's really hard work and in the evenings, you know, when I'm overwhelmed with everything I've got on my plate, I sit in bed sometimes and I'm like, I rehearse and rehearse, which makes me more anxious and then I can't fall asleep. And then I say something like, or I like catastrophize something like, it's going to be like the center is going to crumble. <laughs> and then I'm just like, Mark, you're making this up. Right. And I really, I think that's, it's so important for people to learn how to become scientists about their own strategies and to take a step back and say, am I really making this up to be a self-saboteur? Or is there another way I can look at this so that I don't torment myself? Yeah, like, is this true? Is this what you're thinking true? Is this going to happen? And normally the things we're ruminating about are not true. They're made up in our heads. Or we're just trying to make, you know, we don't know how else to think about it. Right. Um, you know, I, oftentimes when I'm in airports and I'm like, this last week I was traveling from a weird area of Maine and I had to like get a three hour car ride to then get to the airport. Then the flight was delayed three hours. And I was like, All right, what are you doing with your life? I just started going through this whole thing. Like, why am I doing this presentation? I shouldn't have accepted the presentation. This is a waste of time. Like I'm like, now I'm in this like place and how am I going to get out of here? And I want to get stuck. And then I was like, Mark. Take the high road, you know. Tomorrow is gonna be a better day. And you know, the truth was I flew to Princeton, New Jersey, where my brother lives, and we had a great the next day. And but like in the moment we catastrophize, and the question is, can we in that moment take a step back and engage in a process that will help us not allow it to just have so much power over us? Right. And that takes time and practice. It takes Adults working with kids 
on an ongoing basis to be good listeners, to ensure that their children are not going down that path of being that self-saboteur, which means dedicated parenting time, which means being a good listener, which means checking in regularly, you know, which, and, and if it's not working to not give up, you have to try another one. You know, it's, this is like a, a process that is, you know, from really the beginning, you know, of time or of your existence till the, the last day. Because um, development aligns with these things, right? Like now, you know, I'm 50 years old and, you know, my mindsets are different. You know, my, I'm, I'm you know, the long-term marriage for 20 something years, right? I've got a home. I've got relatives and my mother-in-law lives with us. So now I'm dealing with my mother-in-law. You know? <laughs> Anyhow, um, it's something that we have to practice regularly. And I'll just say one other thing about this is that these so-called soft skills are actually harder to learn than the hard skills I've because <laughs> the cold cognitive memorization of like five plus five equals 10. Once you know that you got it down pretty well. But just because I used my positive self-talk three days ago doesn't mean that today mm -hmm. when someone triggers me, I'm going to be able to use it effectively. Exactly. Exactly. It's powerful. Well, why do you think it's so timely now with the rise in mental health issues that we have? We, we see the shocking statistics for our nation's youth with suicide epidemic, depression, and anxiety. It's so common at a young age. How did we arrive at this place where we still struggle to talk about how we feel, how even the most educated can still use some help with understanding our emotions and other people's emotions? So I think, again, going back to permission to feel, the reason why I wrote the book was because there were so many books on emotional intelligence and you know, my mentors were the original theorists around emotional intelligence. But yet I saw people when I would run around the world asking them, like, how are you feeling? Struggle with being able to answer the question honestly and accurately. And either they didn't have an emotional vocabulary or they wouldn't share because they felt vulnerable uh, or they would be seen as, you know, like toxic or whatever the case might be. And I said, so we've got to go back to the basics here of just giving people a, a comfortable experiences to express their feelings, but also give them the vocabulary to express their feelings. And I think when your feelings are locked up inside of you and you don't have the ability to communicate them effectively, you suffer. Yeah. Um, I think there are a million other reasons why people experience unpleasant feelings, you know, from being lost in social media for six to seven hours a day and just constantly making social comparisons to just, you know, in America, the United States, you know, politically, right, there's a lot of tension. And so students are just seeing people fighting all the time and people not getting along. Um, so there's, it's multi-layered, um, but it doesn't mean that we can't make a difference. Yeah, by reading your book and implementing and following your work. And I did see that you're starting a blog on how to be an emotion scientist. Because I am. I'm super excited about that. I've never done that before, but uh, people are always asking me for different things. And I figure, why not stay in touch with people? Through... Yeah, because it's not easy to do this. We need some help. 
Yeah. And I feel like it's like, it, it kind of be like a post study guide to my book. Um, and uh, yeah, so I'm excited to just share the newest research that we do and just innovative practices to help people be better at regulating. Wonderful. Where, where would we be able to find out about the blog so I can? So on my website, it's just markbracket.com. And the website is really dedicated to my book. And uh, it just says blog sign up and um, click there. And it, it started today, actually. Our first post went out today. Oh, yay. Well, I'll put this all in <laughs> and be sure to share this. And what's your vision for where do you see this going um, for the book and Yale Center of Emotional Intelligence? Well, I think first is that we need to make the case for why emotions are important and why they're not to be ignored or suppressed that they're information and we argue in our center that emotions matter for attention and learning decision making relationships mental health and physical health creativity and everyday performance and it's pretty undeniable at this point that how we feel and the strategies that we use to manage our feelings influence these five or six different areas. The second is that we've got to develop the skills. So RULER is an acronym for the five skills of emotional intelligence that I write about in my book. There's a chapter for each of the skills. We've got to get better at recognizing our own other's emotions, understanding their causes and consequences, labeling them with the right words, knowing how and when to express them, and importantly, the strategies to regulate them. And then we've got to apply these skills, right, with our friends and families, got to apply them in school settings and in the workplace. So that's the vision I have, is that emotions become a central part to the way leaders lead, parent teachers teach, and students learn. Wow, well, thank you so much, Mark. First of all, for writing the book the way you did, um, sharing your true self to show the importance of feeling emotions in our lives so we can truly reach those higher levels of achievement. It, thank it's you. definitely opened my eye. It's a new way of thinking about these skills as we implement it. If anyone wants to reach you, the best way is through your website, markbracket.com. Correct. I'll be sure to put that in there and uh, follow your blog and learn more about how to implement the ruler approach. And I just want to thank you so much for sharing your information with the world. I appreciate that. Thank you for having me on. Thank you. If you're enjoying the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning podcast, please don't forget to subscribe so you'll stay up to date with our new episodes. While you're there, please feel free to give us a review or a five-star rating as it helps others find us. For more information on our programs, books, and tools for schools and the workplace, visit us at www.achieveit360.com.